Thank you very much. I don't think authors and writers in general are nearly as appreciative of these invitations and their audiences as they should be, so I don't want to make that mistake. And I want to tell you uh, flat out right off the bat uh, what a privilege and an honor it is for me to speak to a group such as you are uh, with many international visitors. And I'm very, uh, I'm very proud and very happy to, uh, to be able to do that. I also want to make very clear that I am, in fact, standing here speaking at the James B. Milliken dinner. <laughs> Let's not be confused about that. <clears throat> so I am going to speak for you for about 35 minutes, and I would like to establish an oral contract before we start out, and I know that we have lawyers here who could enforce that oral contract. And I would propose that the oral contract would go something like this. I'm going to speak for 35 minutes. I'm going to unload uh, the passion I feel for this story, why I think this story is so important. And after I am done speaking, then for you to fulfill your end of the uh, bargain, the contract, you are going to step up to the microphone on the left and the right, and you're going to ask some of the most incisively brilliant questions that this room has ever heard. <laughs> Do we have a deal? Remember, we got our lawyers here, so we got a deal. Okay. <clears throat> we need good stories. We need good stories. We have always needed good stories. We have needed good stories from the caves of Lascaux in the southwest corner of France, pictographs on the wall that showed what life was like for a certain group of people in a certain specific place in a certain specific time more than 17,000 years ago. We needed those stories. We need the stories of Homer and Virgil and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Chaucer and Victor Hugo and Flaubert and Mark Twain and Charles Dickens and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and William Faulkner and Louise Erdrich. We have always needed good stories because those stories tell us who we are, who we were yesterday, who we are today, and who we're going to be tomorrow. And so I want to tell you tonight about what I think is a very good story. I want to tell you a story about a devoted father, a middle-aged chief of a small, obscure Indian tribe in a remote corner of the northern Great Plains. A father and a leader who defeated the United States government and brought the United States Army to its knees without firing a single shot from his Winchester, without plucking a single arrow from his quiver, without unsheathing his scalping knife. A man who defeated the United States government and its powerful army with a writ of habeas corpus. Never been done before in the 103-year history of our country. It's a story that I have a very obsessive personality. And you kind of have to have an obsessive personality to do these kinds of stories because they take a lot of work. Uh, I would wake up uh, during the, the writing period of this story at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I would think back on some sentence or some paragraph that I had written 12 hours earlier, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And writing is a lot like music. You can convey mood, emotion, sadness, joy, grief, with the way you arrange the words in a sentence, by the cadence, the tempo of a sentence. And I would be laying in bed at 3 o'clock in the morning thinking back on a paragraph or a sentence I had written at 3 o'clock, and I wanted this paragraph or this sentence to sound like Luciano Pavarotti, and it sounded like Roseanne Barr singing the national anthem. <laughs> now, who the hell can go to sleep with that rattling around in your head? You can't. So I would get up, 
and I would put on the coffee pot, I would click on my computer, and I would see many nights that it was six inches of snow, two degrees below zero. What was I doing up at three o'clock in the morning? Well, then I thought about this man here, and I'll tell you a little bit more detail about what he did, what he did to honor the promise that he had made his son. So we want to talk about these stories, and we want to talk about how important they are. And this is a story that begins in January of 1877, when this chief, Standing Bear, and his 750 Ponca are camped in their winter village near where the Niobrara River flows into the Missouri, a beautiful, gorgeous landscape that doesn't look too much different today with a, except for a telephone pole here or there than it did when Lewis and Clark first saw it in the September of 1804. <clears throat> does anybody uh, know the name Wendell Berry? Wendell Berry, does that name ring a bell? It, it does, Wendell Berry, good. Then you know that Wendell Berry is a very fine writer. He's a very fine poet. He's a very fine essayist from Kentucky. And Wendell Berry once wrote a sentence that I have always embraced and loved and thought about and was a central driving force in researching this book and trying to tell this story. And Wendell Berry once wrote, if you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are. And think of how concise that sentence is and how much power is packed into such few words. If you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are. And think about how that affects you. Think about how place, geography, your neighborhood, your community, your university, your state, your region, your country, how all of those tributaries flow into the narrative river that makes up who you are and makes up your identity. Nobody understood Wendell Berry better than Standing Bear and the 750 Ponca who were camped in their winter village in January of 1877. This is a group of people who lived in this beautiful lush valley that not one Senate treaty said they owned, but two Senate treaties said they owned. This is a group of people who had transformed this lush valley into bountiful fields of corn, wheat, pumpkin, squash, so much so that if it weren't for the Ponca's agricultural skills and their ability to sink a deep cultural taproot into this land, dozens of white settlers flooding across the Mississippi in the post-Civil War years wouldn't have survived because they underestimated the Nebraska winters. They didn't know, for example, it could snow in May. <laughs> but the Ponca did. And the Ponca understood this land, and they understood who they were because they knew where they were, and they had lived there for 200 years. They knew rocks. And it would take too long to try and explain the sacred connection between most indigenous people and the landscapes from which they had merged. These rocks had a sacred value to the Ponca. The cottonwood trees that flanked the banks of the Niobrara in Missouri had sacred qualities. There were seven hills where they buried their dead, and nothing is more sacred among Indian people than where they bury their dead. When Crazy Horse once was asked, where are his lands, his response was, my lands are where my fathers lie buried. So the Ponca could not be separated from where they had lived for the last 200 years. It is what they were and who they were. So in January of 1877, well, let me back up a second. Is there anybody here who owns a farm? And your name is? 
Jeff Rakes owns a farm. Okay, so let me ask you a question, Mr. Rakes. If the agent of the United States government knocked on your door tomorrow and said, Mr. Rakes, we understand that you own your farm, but the great white father in Washington would like you to pack up and move as fast as you can to Oklahoma, what would your response be? We were there Christian people in this room, religious people, so don't get crazy on us. Oh, that would be a problem. That would be a problem. Who else owns a uh, ranch or farm? Uh, and uh, the same scenario, uh, Keith. Yes, if a government agent knocked on your door and said, we know you own it, but move. It's in the president's best interest. Your response would be? Nebraskans are so polite. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. All right. Um, well, that's exactly the situation that the Ponca were in in January of 1877. When a strange white man from the East Coast, from of all places, the Upper East Side of New York City, a man who knew nothing whatsoever about Indians in general and absolutely nothing about the Ponca specifically, arrived in their winter village near the confluence of the Niobrara and Missouri rivers and said to the astonishment, bewilderment, incomprehensible statement that the great white father would like all 750 Ponca to pack up as fast as they can and move to what was then called the Indian Territory and 1907 became the state of Oklahoma. Now, this isn't meant to offend anybody, but to the Nebraskans in this room, no Nebraskan is moving to Oklahoma. <laughs> not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. It's not happening. It's not going to happen. And that was pretty much the reaction of Standing Bear. But it was something that was so abstract, they could not wrap their heads around it. The Indian Territory. They knew who they were because they knew where they were. And the Indian Territory was a completely abstract term. It meant nothing to them. And Standing Bear actually was a little bit more forceful than Keith and Jeff. And so was his brother Big Snake, a 6'4", 250-pound enforcer for the tribe who would have been a hellacious defensive end for, that's another reason they stayed in Nebraska. <laughs> they said, no, no, we're not moving. We're not leaving our land. We own this land. We've lived here for 200 years. It's who we are. So they called in two detachments of cavalry from Fort Landis, 70 miles up the Missouri, and they came to the Ponca village in the winter of 18, late January of 1877. They slapped handcuffs on Standing Bear and Big Snake. They put uh, leg shackles on them. They threw them in the back of a wagon, and they ran them up the Missouri 70 miles and threw them in a stockade in Fort Randall. And then they moved back to the winter village, bereft of their chiefs, and they began to withhold water from all 750 Ponca. Then they began to withhold food. And after five days, the elderly people and the young children became desperately weak and sick. And the most sacred obligation of any chief was to protect his people and to look out for the welfare of his people. And so faced with that situation, Standing Bear and Big Snake agreed to move to this place called the Indian Territory. And so thus began this biblical journey of 600 miles from near the South Dakota border to Oklahoma in one of the, the wettest, coldest, most miserable springs through Kansas. And finally, in July of 
1877, they are unceremoniously dumped upon this strange new land in which they didn't recognize the rocks or the trees or some of the animals and some of the plants. No farming implements, no, no real steady food supply, cheap army canvas tents strung out in these fetid, humid, nasty creek bottoms in July of 1877 in Oklahoma. And those creek bottoms were filled with what? Did I hear mosquitoes? And the mosquitoes were carrying one-third of the tribe, one-third of these healthy, robust northern people between July of 1877 and July of 1878, the first year they were deposited on what they called the warm country. One-third of these people were dead. One-third of these people had died. One-third of these 750 people were buried in shallow graves in the hated soil of this place that they did not understand. And then in Christmas week of 1878, lying on the bottom of a cheap, cold army canvas tent was Standing Bear's 16-year-old son, Bear Shield, Standing Bear's only son, a son that Standing Bear had invested an enormous amount of time, effort, and energy in because Standing Bear understood the only way his people were going to survive is if they had a chief who had one foot in the new world order and one foot in the old way of life. So he had sent Bear Shield, his only son, to study with missionaries, to learn about the white man's God and the white man's religion. He sent him to white schools to learn about the white man's government and the white man's history. But now, three days before Christmas in 1878, this son that he thought would be the cultural bridge that would allow his people to have one foot in the new world order but also retain their cultural identity lay curled up in a fetal position, dying of malaria on the bottom of this cheap army canvas tent. But before his eyes closed in death, this 16-year-old boy extracted a promise from his father that upon his death, he would take his body and repatriate his remains in their beloved homeland. And Standing Bear promised that he would. So about 2 o'clock in the afternoon of January 2nd, 1879, Standing Bear wrapped the body of his only son in his best clothing, wrapped the body in a buffalo robe, put him in the back of a rickety wagon, and he and 29 others began walking home 600 miles from Oklahoma to the Nebraska-South Dakota border. That day that they left, January 2nd, 1879, the wind chill... I'm sorry, the air temperature, not the wind chill, the air temperature on the road up ahead that day was 19 below zero. They had very little food, very little clothing, and very little money. Also in January of 1879, the government of the United States had entered into 371 treaties with the native people of America. And in January of 1879, the United States government had broken all 371 treaties. But this middle-aged chief was not going to break his promise to his son. So they kept walking, 19 below zero. The third day they were out, there was a hellacious blizzard that came in from Canada, winds uh, more than 40 miles an hour that dropped the wind chill to 77 below zero. And I know exactly how cold it was because mercifully and wonderfully, there is a repository on the University of Nebraska-Lincoln campus that warehouses all of the weather records for the Great Plains for the last 150 years. And if you're writing a story like this, and you're trying to pull readers into it, 
There's a big difference between writing a sentence that says it was very cold that day and writing a sentence that says it was 19 below zero that day. Those are two different sentences entirely. So they had to tunnel into haystacks in these open fields and put the old people in and the young people in because their skin was, was freezing. And they would rummage for field corn during the day, boil it over an open fire, and they would go on one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time to honor this deathbed pledge. And they got within two days of the sacred burial sites in their beloved homeland. And the army caught up with them. And they turned their faces south. And they marched them back to Fort Omaha. And they put all 30, nine men, 10 women, and 11 children in the stockade at Fort Omaha. And the brigadier general of that fourth most powerful military man west of the Mississippi, Brigadier General George Crook, stood above the lower parade ground that day and watched these 30 Poncas straggling in. And he remarked in his letters, in his diaries, how horrified he was to see the skin on the women hanging in clumps that looked like charred bacon from their elbows and their wrists and the young children with what looked like charred bacon hanging from their elbows and their wrists because their skin had been so severely frostbitten that it was completely dead. And this is where the story really starts to take off in a way that had never unfolded in the 103-year history of the United States. And I want to give you three very specific reasons why I love this story and why it was not unusual to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and try and do justice to the legacy of the first domino that fell in the civil rights history for Native American people in this country. In May of 1879, as I said at the beginning of the talk, this man found himself on the second floor of a federal courthouse on the corner of 15th and Dodge Streets in Omaha, Nebraska. And by the time this trial ended, by the time this grizzly bear hunting, Indian-hating judge by the name of Elmer Dundee, who had never rendered a decision remotely favorable to Indians, the only federal judge in Nebraska at that time, heard this man's story and listened to his answers under this ruthless two-day interrogation by this brash young federal prosecutor, two weeks after the, the trial ended, he did something that had never been done. He wrote a ruling, he entered a judgment that said from this day forward, this man and his people are to be considered as people within the meaning of the law, that they are regarded as human beings entitled to the same constitutional protection and privileges as the more fortunate white race. So there are many, many reasons why I love this story, not only because of the legal precedents and the social justice crusade and the fact that this man would do what he did to honor his son in this way, but I want to give you three very specific reasons why I love this story. When you're writing a book like this that took me two and a half years, I've written hundreds and hundreds of thousands of newspaper articles. That's the equivalent of running a 100-meter dash, if we're going to use a running metaphor. If you write magazine articles, which I've written scores of, that's the equivalent of running a mile. When you're writing a book, that's the equivalent of running a marathon. You have to train for it. You have to prepare for it. You have to study it. You have to think, what am I going to have to do to arrange everything in my favor so that I can get through two and a half years and do this story justice. And one of the very first things you have to do is find out, in my opinion, 
Are there any universal themes in this story? Do you have a strong protagonist to drive the storyline through? But does it have universal themes? We have kind of been conditioned in many ways, at least the Americans in this room, if you want to find universal themes, well, then you need to read Mr. William Shakespeare. You need to read Mr. Fyodor Dostoevsky. You need to read Mr. Ernest Hemingway. But I am here to conclusively and passionately tell you, well, that may be true, but you don't necessarily have to trundle across some dreary Scottish Moorish landscape to find a universal theme. You don't have to trudge through some frozen snowy street in St. Petersburg to find a universal theme. You don't have to trundle across some bloody bullring in Pomplona. You can find a hellacious collection of universal themes 200 miles north of where we are right now that sprang from the soil of Nebraska, right where the Niobrara empties into the Missouri River. This is a story about love of country. This is a story about love of family. This is a story about courage, honor, fortitude, perseverance. This is a story chock-a-block with universal themes. Three days into this forced march, with bayonets to their back in this miserable spring in May of 1877, 600-mile march to a place they had never heard of, they had just crossed the Elkhorn River in northeast Nebraska, and a six-month-old baby died on the bottom of this damp army canvas tent of pneumonia. Her name was White Buffalo Girl. Her mother, crushed by the fact of leaving their homeland, now looked at their dead daughter lying in the bottom of this army canvas tent and was so emotionally crushed that she couldn't move. She couldn't leave the tent. She couldn't open the flap. She sat there for six hours and just held White Buffalo Girl to her chest, sobbing uncontrollably. She finally asked her husband, to leave the tent and to go find the army commander and ask the army commander to go into the town of Neely, Nebraska and find the town carpenter and ask if he would build a small wooden coffin and a small wooden cross for their dead daughter. And the husband did. And he found Captain E.A. Howard and Captain E.A. Howard went into town and got the carpenter to build a small wooden coffin and a small wooden cross and about 3 o'clock that afternoon on a hillside overlooking the Elkhorn River, the entire town of Neely came out. And in a steady drizzle, the grieving father begged the town of Neely to treat his daughter as though she were one of their own, that Indian people never leave their dead behind, but they have no choice. And if we were to be magically transported to the Laurel Hill Cemetery outside of Neely, Nebraska, we would see a magnificent cemetery with three sweeping hills that sit high above the Elkhorn River Valley. And on the highest hill, you would also see that there is only one grave of more than 800 that is allowed to have flowers on it all year round. And you would see that the tradition has been that every Mother's Day, mothers all over northeast Nebraska bring their young daughters to this gravesite overlooking the Elkhorn River. And they tell their young daughters in the 1930s, the 1960s, the 1990s, in the opening years of the 21st century, they tell them the story of White Buffalo Girl and her people and how the town of Neely circled the wagons around this grieving mother and the father. 
And if we were to be magically transported to Neely and we would be able to interview Mr. Laverne Houtman, the vice president of the Antelope County Historical Society, and we would ask him, Laverne, okay, we get it, 20 years you fulfilled the pledge, 30 years. But we're now talking 134 years later, what accounts for that? Why are you still doing that? And he would look you squarely in the eye and in a classic Laverne understated voice, he would just say very calmly and very matter-of-factly that we thought it was the Christian thing to do back then, and we think it's the Christian thing to do now. And I don't ever see that changing. That's one of the reasons I love this story. The second reason is because it has this incredible cast of characters that came out of the woodwork in a way that never happened in America before. If you take the 19th century and spread it out on a historical continuum, you will see this is a century that began with these devastating epidemics that came close to wiping out entire tribes. There's valuable, legitimate, primary source material that shows the Mandan of North Dakota were down to their last 12 people, that they had no resistance against the smallpox and the whooping crop, the diphtheria, that the fur traders were carrying up the rivers from St. Louis, that the Mandan were down to 12 people. And it's a century that ended on the bloody banks of Wounded Knee Creek. So if you take that whole century and you look at that intersection where the forces of manifest destiny collided with the indigenous population, not a lot of good things happened to the indigenous population. And then along comes Standing Bear. Along comes May of 1879, when for the first time in this entire century, there was freak show of white people who came out of the shadows to rally around this man's flag. The most powerful military man west of the Mississippi a military man through and through, a West Point graduate, General George Crook, heavily decorated Civil War veteran who, except for the Civil War, had spent his entire life fighting Indians. And he sees these people come in, and he sees the telegram on his desk from his superior, Lieutenant General Philip Sheridan, who had famously said some years earlier, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, is now he is telling him, General Crook, ordering him to march these people back to Oklahoma, which Crook knew would be a certain death sentence. And I can see him pacing in that beautiful home at Fort Omaha, his civilian conscience in this brutal tug of war with his military conscience, the needle going back and forth. And late March, late at night, that needle slipped ever so slightly over to the civilian side of his conscience. And he went down and saddled up his horse and under the cover of darkness, rode three miles south and knocked on the door of the assistant editor for the Omaha Daily Herald, which would soon morph into the Omaha World Herald, and a larger-than-life character named Thomas Henry Tibbles comes out the door, and General Crook says, Tom, I think I've got a story you might be interested in. I've been a reporter for 30 years. For 30 years, I've been waiting for that tweet, that Facebook, that email from the highest-ranking military man, Westimus. Joe, I got a great story for you. Uh, hasn't happened. I'm not holding my breath, but it did happen. In late March of 1870, the highest-ranking military man coming to Standing Bear's aid. Bishop Clarkson, the most powerful religious figure in Nebraska, was so disgusted with this dual message they were getting from Washington. On the one hand, we're supposed to Christianize these people, and on the other hand, we're supposed to send them to hell. He didn't think they were smart enough, and he wrote these really satirical, ironic messages as Secretary of the Interior saying, we're just rubes out here. We don't really get it like you smart people in Washington. Can you square this for us? Can you explain how we're supposed to simultaneously Christianize these people and send them to hell? So he didn't wait for an answer. He started gathering a, a clothing drive and a food drive, and pretty soon they had all kinds of food and clothing for these 30 starving, freezing Ponca. 
because of Bishop Clarkson, most powerful religious figure. The Jewish community of Omaha in the spring of 1879 came out of the shadows and they began hitting up white people for money to get a defense fund for an American Indian in a federal courtroom. Do you think that happened every week in 1879? Happened just once. And then, of course, the coup de grace is out of the shadows comes, you can't make these people up, Andrew Jackson Poppleton. If you and I were in trouble in the spring of 1879 in Omaha or anywhere else, we would want Andrew Jackson Poppleton as our lawyer. He was the first lawyer admitted to the Nebraska bar. He's a former mayor of Omaha. He's a former state legislator. He was this silver-haired, silver-tongued orator who just ironically happened to be the general counsel for the Union Pacific Railroad in the spring of 1879, the one institution that had done more to destroy Native culture than anything else in the country. He wants to represent Standing Bear, pro bono, for free, because he's so intrigued with this man's case. So all these people are coming out of the woodwork to rally around this man's flag, and that makes that an a very unique story. It makes it an outlier. It makes it many, many deviations from the mean because that isn't the way things worked in the 19th century. The last reason that I love this story, it's not like the first two. I can prove the first two. I can prove that there were very specific universal themes to this story. I can prove that there was a dazzling array of white people who stepped out of the shadows to rally around an American Indian's cause for the first time in our history. The third reason I can't prove in the same way, but I believe it nevertheless, and I think if given enough time, I probably could prove it. Once the judge declared Standing Bear to be a person within the meaning of the law, a speaking tour began in which Standing Bear and the crusading journalist Thomas Henry Tibbles and this amazing Omaha Indian poet Bright Eyes who had gone to school from the Omaha Reservation to a New Jersey school for girls and had fallen in love with Shakespeare. That happened all the time in the 1870s. <clears throat> they all went on this extended speaking tour, and they talked to thousands of people up and down the East Coast, and they were trying to plant the seeds for this lead domino to fall that would eventually gain citizenship rights and voting rights for the Native people. And my argument is on the third reason why I love this story is that for two days Standing Bear sat in his chair on the second floor of this monolithic limestone courthouse on the corner of 15th and Dodge. And this young brash, Gino Lambertson, the federal prosecutor, was in his face demanding to know, who are you? And what does it mean to be a Ponca? And what does it mean to be a chief? And what do your people believe in? And what will you do if we give you your land back? This kind of assault, machine gun style for two days, Standing Bear's answers translated back by the Omaha Indian poet Bright Eyes. But I would make the argument for this third reason that in a metaphorical sense, what really happened in the summer, fall, and into the winter of 1879 on these extended speaking tours in the major cities on the East Coast is that Standing Bear was holding a mirror up to America. He was holding a mirror and forcing Americans to look into that mirror and confront what it is they saw. And he was asking the questions. He was asking, who am I? No, who are you? And what is this thing you have called democracy? And who is your God? 
And what does your God stand for? And I think you could make a very compelling argument that that is what he was doing. And in effect, he did something that is very difficult to do when all of this ended and the debate had finally been settled. He did something that's very difficult that very few people can do, and that is he made Americans and America better than it knew it could be. To stay with our raising the bar analogy, he raised the bar to a height that Americans didn't know they could clear, but they did. And that's not a common everyday occurrence. To me, a great book, a great story, a great film, a great poem, a great opera should always inspire us to look deeper within ourselves. To look deeper within ourselves and to confront the two important questions. Who are we? At 3 o'clock in the morning, when all the mirrors and the masks and the artifice are stripped away, who are we really? And what is it that we value? What is it that we really believe in? And I think a good story should inspire us to look deeper into ourselves and into our relationships with our families and our friends. And it should inspire us to look at the world more closely and embrace this world more closely and to look at it in the end with more sensitive and compassionate eyes. That's what a great story should do. And I think that's what Standing Bear's story does. And I think that's his gift to us. So in closing, I would say, suppose we were to create a mythological table of American history heroes up here on this stage. And we had 12 seats. And suppose I was uh, going to hand out ballots to all of you and you got three votes and you wrote down who you think should be at this mythological table of American history heroes. And so I give you all the ballots, I gather them up, I count them, and I am going to guess that when all the ballots are tabulated from this group right here, that that resolute rail splitter from Springfield, Illinois is gonna be at this table. I'll bet you he is. I'll bet you that celebrated kite flyer from Philadelphia is gonna grab a seat at this table. I'm guessing that that man who wrote those celebrated le uh, letters about freedom from a Birmingham jail cell is going to find a seat at this table. And I'm also going to guess that that woman who on December 1st, 1955, had spent all day cleaning somebody else's house, spent all day washing somebody else's clothes, spent all day doing somebody else's laundry, bone-weary, dead-tired, all she wanted to do was just sit on a bus and get home. And then she was asked to stand up and give her seat to a white person. And she responded with one word, and that word was, no. I'm guessing she's going to sit at that table too. And I'm just saying that it would not shame me or bother me in any way, shape, or form, if we approached this mythological table of American history heroes and we saw an empty chair at that table, and above that empty chair was a brass plate that said simply, Reserved Chief Standing Bear. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I believe I fulfilled my, uh, my part of the contract. So if someone has any comment, I mean, I think we have a little bit of time and that they were encouraging that. Um, if there is somebody who wants to step up to that microphone and make a comment or ask a question, uh, I think that would be perfectly fine. You have no choice. You have to. That's the bargain. Get up there, Mike. Any comments or any questions? Um, I'm not leaving until somebody makes a <laughs> When is the movie coming out? Um, that's always that's always a uh, you know you never you never take any of those things seriously until you actually see a contract. But there is a there is a fair amount of interest in a movie. One of one of them coming from the owner of the Minnesota Twins, a guy named Bill Polian, who likes to plunk down his cash uh, and has in the past on kind of quirky movies. The last one being Brokeback Mountain. And there's also an Ojibwe, Dave Anderson, who owns Famous Dave's, uh, who is uh, quite interested in maybe investing some money because he really sees this. I mean, what he has said is that he really sees this as a really positive story about Indian people, and he would like more people to know about it. So, like I said, we'll, I'll see that when it's actually in writing and in contract form. I believe we're going to have to go with ladies first. Are you okay with that? Thanks, Joe. Great presentation. Thank you. As a native of Neely, Nebraska, I'm curious to know the rest of the story. Was the son buried? What happened to Standing Bear? You've got three minutes. Uh, <laughs> Wow, you're from Neely. That's great. That's, that's a, such a sweetheart of a community, and that, that's just a, a really wonderful place. Uh, the question is, what happened to... Uh, Standing Bear did fulfill his pledge. He did, uh, upon Judge Dundee's order, he and all of his people were released from jail in mid-May of 1879, and they were free uh, to go on about their business. And uh, paramount among their business was repatriating the bones of Bear Shield, which they did, and nobody really knows, knows where or when or how other than uh, those bones were buried in, in their sacred homeland. More than likely on an island that was in the Niobrara, but even among the oral historians of the Ponca, there's a good deal of debate over the precise location, and anybody who says they know for sure uh, what the precise location is, uh, you can be sure that they don't. But they did rebury them. Yes, sir. Uh, left mic, techies. I'll just. Whoop, there, there we, we go. go. Okay. So uh, this is a variant on that question. A very what question? A variant on that question. Oh, okay. What What happened to the Ponca who were still in Oklahoma? What happened to the Ponca was still in Oklahoma. What happened to uh, what happened eventually was that there was a big investigation. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, in his waning uh, months in office, um, he basically decreed that any of the Ponca in Oklahoma 
They could either stay where they were or they could go back to, to the Niobrara. And most of them stayed in Oklahoma. They were tired. They were weary. They were beaten. They were exhausted. But they had gotten some new reservation land in north central Oklahoma that was very similar to the beautiful Niobrara homeland they had left. And they just didn't have the, the, the courage, the energy, the heart to pick up and go again. So today, the Southern Ponca are a very intact, strong tribe. Those who straggled up to the north were never given a land base, a reservation, and they are much smaller now, today, in number, and scattered up and down the eastern corridor of Nebraska. That makes sense? Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for your presentation. You're I'm welcome. curious how the American Indian community responded to your telling of the story. Uh, with some exceptions, uh, they, they were fine with it. There's always a certain number of people who resent outsiders, white people, telling their stories. But the overwhelming majority are happy to have this story out, happy to... Uh, Standing Bear has never been more alive than he is now. He died in 1908. He's been the subject of an opera, Wakanda's Dream in Omaha. He's been the subject of a book. He's the subject of a play that's been shown in New York and, and Washington, and a very dear friend and colleague of mine, uh, Christine Leshak at the PBS station here in Lincoln did a magnificent uh, documentary, that one-hour documentary that aired nationally in October. So, uh, and he has a wonderful bus in the state capitol. Yes, so his profile has been elevated uh, more than it's ever been, which means no, more people know this story. And anybody who thinks that's a bad thing, I don't have time for and most people don't. Most people, uh, including most Native people, and I, when you do a book like this, you have to weave the Native people into the narrative. I mean, and you're, you're foolish. I mean, there's another guy who wrote a book on Standing Bear. Uh, he's, he's an Aussie. He, he's from Australia. And he wrote the book without ever leaving Australia. And that's like some kind of a literary felony. That's like... 10 to 12 years of hard labor. Because you have to understand their attachment to the land before you can understand their grief and what they lost. And you can't really convey that from an island seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 miles from the Niobrara. And if you involve the native people, if you involve the Ponca, uh, they have some great stories to tell. And that needs to be uh, braided into the quilt of the story, their voices, their history. Uh, that's just common sense, I think. And so I, you always have some disgruntled people, but they're very few and far between. But a very good question. Yes, sir. Last question. The town of Ponca? Well, it's tied in in the extent that that's where the Ponca, that was more or less part of their homeland uh, uh, back when they, uh, when, when they were uh, all living in Nebraska. But it, it doesn't have a specific tie-in. It's just named after the fact that like a lot of, a lot of places 
have Indian names uh, named after tribes um, because the tribes once lived in that area. But the connection is no, is no deeper than that. Uh, I also, the last thing I wanted to say, and I, sometimes I feel queasy about this, but I'm kind of getting over that. Um, the last thing I want to say is that 14 months ago, I started a, uh, a scholarship fund a scholarship fund for Nebraska Native American high school graduates. And my goal is to raise $100,000, and I've raised $71,000. And I'm going to get the $100,000. It's, it's just a matter of time, no matter what I have to do, legally. Um, <laughs> and I want to use this money, and I am going to use this money, to start awarding scholarships next spring. And I would love for lots of people to be stakeholders in this. And I'm not asking for $20,000 or $10,000 or... I'm just asking for whatever people can give, $5, $10, $20. Because if you see the difference that a scholarship can make to a Native American on one of our reservations, it totally alters the trajectory not only of their life, but of the lives of all the people around them, particularly their children. We have far more Chinese students at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln than we do Native Americans, and that's fine. That's fine. It's, that's the way it should be. Uh, but I want to bring up that other part of the equation, and I'm very determined to do that. So I'm saying this because um, I am selling books. This book, it's $15. I get $3. That's my cut out of every book, and every penny of that goes into the scholarship fund. So if you would like a book, and there are probably worse ways to spend $15, uh, I'll be uh, outside afterwards. And in the meantime, I probably prattled on longer than I intended to, but I really do thank you very much for allowing me to speak at James B. Milliken's dinner. Thank you. Thank you.